Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Tuesday, October 27th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Throwing cold water on that whole signs of life on Venus news. A new travel guide to haunted hotels based on bad TripAdvisor reviews. A study looking into why we don't click or comment on certain posts online. And Kazakhstan changes their stance on Borat. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. After all the excitement of water molecules on the moon yesterday, it's time for some more disappointing space news. Those promising signs of life on Venus may not be so promising after all. So a few weeks ago, you may remember a lot of buzz about a team of researchers who detected indications of phosphine in Venus's atmosphere. Phosphine is a gas that, on Earth, is created by life. So could it mean that the searing hot planet perhaps has some type of life in its atmosphere? Well, the reviewing of their research by other scientists that the original team asked for has occurred, and it doesn't look good for us getting some new neighbors. Quoting Sci-Fi's Bad Astronomy, The team's initial observations of Venus were made using the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope, or JCMT, in Hawaii, which looks at light in the sub-millimeter wavelength region, far longer wavelength than infrared but not quite as long as microwaves. Phosphine, a simple molecule of one phosphorus atom and three hydrogens, similar to ammonia, can emit and absorb light at a wavelength JCMT can detect. They saw a dip in the light of Venus at that wavelength, indicating the molecule might be there in the Venusian clouds, absorbing light emitted from the atmosphere of Venus below it, but it wasn't strong enough to claim a detection. So they turned to ALMA, a much more sensitive array of dishes in Chile. The data from that observatory showed the dip much more clearly, and their claims are based on that observation. End quote. The problem came when looking at the data. The spectrum plot wavered up and down a bunch seemingly randomly, what's called being noisy. And to try to smooth out the noise, the team employed a common method using a 12th order polynomial. You don't need to know how that works to understand the issue, but if you are curious, I put an explainer in the show notes. What is important to know is that this method can sometimes make the noise look like real signals, and some of the scientists reviewing the original team's claims think this may be exactly what happened. Another issue with the phosphine research is that there appears to have been a pipeline processing issue with the data calibration of the telescope, which would, of course, mess with the data. One team reviewing the research says that if calibrated correctly, the dip in data that leads to the phosphine signal would go away, and folks at ALMA are currently looking into this. But there was a third potential issue with the research— Back when the news first came out, Bad Astronomy pointed out that while the data from the ALMA telescope showed absorption at the right wavelength for phosphine, quote, finding a single absorption feature in the spectrum is a little bit iffy. I'm reasonably convinced they found phosphine, but I'd be happier if they found it at different wavelengths as well, end quote. And continuing from the recent article, quote, Atoms and molecules absorb light at multiple wavelengths, so if you think you've found it at one wavelength, it's best to look for it at others, too. So another team observed Venus with the infrared telescope facility in Hawaii to look for phosphine at different wavelengths, specifically about 10 microns. They didn't find anything there. End quote. Now, while these are three big points against the original research, it doesn't completely rule out phosphine in Venus's atmosphere. There's a lot of delicate moving parts here, 
But overall, it's a good reminder to remain skeptical of any research. And it also further underscores why NASA's announcement about water molecules on the moon was such a huge deal yesterday. Yes, a chemical signature indicating presence of water had been known for over a decade and we just kind of assumed it was there, but it was never definitive until now. And getting definitive evidence of phosphine on Venus will be substantially more difficult owing to the distance and the heat of the planet. Even unmanned spacecraft can't get too close without being burned up. It's definitely worth continuing to study, but probably best to remain vigilant and skeptical of all that we hear. If you're the type of person who likes an extra dose of the paranormal when you're traveling, there's now a book for that. Ghost Stories of TripAdvisor is a new guidebook slash coffee table book that curates the real-life reviews of hotel customers who claim to have come in contact with lodgers from the afterlife. The book, available in a limited-run leather-bound edition as well as a standard paperback, includes 40 reviews from hotels around the world. Quoting, it's nice that the idea for the project was born when the team was visiting Boscastle, a village in England that's home to the Museum of Witchcraft, the world's largest collection of witchcraft and occult-related artifacts. They booked into the nearby Wellington Hotel, but later checked its TripAdvisor page and discovered an eerie review describing a chilly early morning visitation that paralyzed and scared the guest. Unperturbed, they still ventured to the Wellington. Though disappointed to have a deep and restful sleep with no ghosts in sight, the experience prompted a year-long internet trawl for the other accounts of hotel hauntings on TripAdvisor. End quote. Each review and page spread is designed like a directory with the full TripAdvisor info, like the hotel's location, price, facilities, and the review's star rating. And the reviews are published in their original writing, typos intact, and accompanied by black and white photos of the hotels, stylized for extra noir spookiness. While all of the reviews do mention the supernatural, most of them aren't actually great reviews of the hotels or the hauntings that occurred. A review of the Jamaica Inn in England notes they were underwhelmed by the inn's museum, as well as their, quote, low-grade cafeteria, quality bar food, and then goes on to describe their brush with a spirit, quote, When I went to use the toilets, I was able to confirm the presence of a ghostly demonic entity, which presented itself in the form of a stench of death. It was clearly angry, so I left quickly, end quote. Depending on the type of person you are, you could use this book as a warning list of hotels to avoid, or, as one reviewer, Victor Wind of the Victor Wind Museum of Curiosities said, quote, a reliable guide to easy-to-see ghosts and easy-to-feel hauntings, end quote. A new study out of the University of Michigan School of Information really piqued my interest this morning. They sought to find out not why, as so many marketers want to know, people click on different things, but rather why people don't click. More specifically, why they don't engage with certain posts, but they do with others. Quoting Futurity, What's new about this piece is that we're really turning our focus to instances where individuals are paying attention and are looking at content and then consciously and deliberately deciding not to click. This is a new approach for the field's traditional ways of understanding social media use, says lead author Nicole Ellison, professor of information at the University of Michigan. Until now, Ellison says, researchers have put social media behaviors generally in one of two camps. 
Passive users who refrain from participating online, often correlated with negative outcomes such as social comparison, or active users who comment and click as a form of social connectedness, end quote. But the study says there's more to it than users simply existing on one end of the spectrum or the other, and sought to understand the why behind each interaction, or lack thereof. Ellison notes how many people there are that may not click like or comment on a post they see, but they will mention it to someone at work the next day, or text it to a friend. And those types of interactions aren't captured analytically, so they've been left out of a lot of previous studies. And while this study didn't capture that data per se, they did eye-tracking on 38 participants as they scrolled Facebook and then asked them some follow-up questions. Quoting the University of Michigan, A tracker mounted at the bottom of a monitor recorded eye gaze as users viewed 598 posts, during which they offered 268 reactions, including likes and the various emoji variations, which at the time of the research did not include the newer care icon, shares, one event response, and composed written responses. Clicks were about 6 per session, and the median viewing time was 7.65 seconds per post. Counterintuitively, the researchers said they found no difference in viewing duration for those items that received clicks versus non-clicks. End quote. But in the follow-up surveys, they pulled out three major themes on why people didn't click or respond to items that they clearly spent time with based on the eye tracking. First, people said that they saw Facebook as, quote, a conversation starter. They preferred to bring what they saw to an offline conversation with someone or share it to another platform, and also noted that a simple like could often be misconstrued. Another behavior that could be added here is how often you see a post, usually a more serious one, and you just don't know what you could possibly say in a comment that could effectively communicate sympathy. And after thinking for a moment, you just give up and keep scrolling. Second, it seemed people were driven more by interpersonal relationships than their own interests. That's to say, a desire to please others or not. And I'm definitely guilty of this. You know, there are people whose posts I like more so because I like them or I want to show support or I might feel obligated to in some way rather than because I actually like the content of what they're posting. And third, and sort of similarly to the last point, people thought about the public and algorithmic ramifications of liking posts. They didn't want to sow division in their social circles by maybe accidentally showing favoritism for one niece or nephew over another or even if personally interested, didn't want to be seen connected to something political or potentially controversial. And plenty of people said they didn't want to like things that intrigued them because they didn't want the algorithm to show them more content with related words, which can go back to the showing or not showing support for people thing. You know, maybe you do want to show your support for a friend, but what they're posting will lead the algorithm to think you're really into, I don't know, vintage clown decorations. So what do you do? Now, I gotta say, none of this was particularly mind-blowing, but it was really reassuring to hear that most other people are doing the same things I am with social media. Yeah, I'm particularly interested in the way the researchers phrased their first point. Clicking can be lightweight, channel switching can be meaningful. Because I think that's one of the more difficult things to quantify analytically, you know, especially for brands who aren't quite as savvy. I have definitely worked for companies that just want as many likes and conversions as possible, but those often mean nothing. I mean, just listen to the reasons people listed for liking posts. Hardly a huge stamp of approval. And especially on Facebook, those numbers can come from click farms. What's way more valuable is that word-of-mouth factor. 
And sure, if someone DMs a link or clicks the share button, you can quantify that a bit, but not if they never touched it and just mention it to someone offline later. I kind of wish the study had gone a bit deeper, but it is cool to be reminded how much thought goes into every move we make or don't on social media. It's reassuring to remember that we're still autonomous beings with our own willpower and rebellion against algorithms, though less reassuring to remember that the biggest platforms are well aware of this particular brand of psychology and how to use it to make us stay. So the new Borat movie, Borat's subsequent movie film, is officially out, and in a reversal of their previous stance, Kazakhstan's tourism board has officially adopted Borat's slogan, Very Nice, as their own. When the first Borat movie was released in 2006, featuring endless stereotyping and baseless myths about the nation and its people, Kazakhstan banned the film from their country, threatened to sue Sasha Baron Cohen, and took out a four-page ad in the New York Times defending their country. When the new movie came out, Kairat Sadvakasov, the deputy chairman of Kazakhstan's tourism board, said that originally, quote, the decision was made to let it die its natural death and not respond, end quote. But then a younger and notably American-born travel show host in Kazakhstan pitched the idea to do a series of videos showing off the country and featuring the slogan, Kazakhstan, very nice. Remarkably, he was met with zero pushback. Sadvakasov notes that while the older generations were aghast and defensive about Borat, the younger generations embrace it. He says they're on social media, connected with the world and its comedy, but perhaps more importantly, he says, quote, In COVID times, when tourism spending is on hold, it was good to see the country mentioned in the media. Not in the nicest way, but it's good to be out there. We would love to work with Cohen or maybe even have him film here. End quote. So basically, COVID pushed them to do it. As for Sasha Baron Cohen, he said, quote, This is a comedy, and the Kazakhstan in the film has nothing to do with the real country. I chose Kazakhstan because it was a nice place that almost nobody in the U.S. knew anything about, which allowed us to create a wild, comedic, fake world. The real Kazakhstan is a beautiful country with a modern, proud society, the opposite of Borat's version. End quote. I wouldn't say his intention there absolves him of all sins, but it's good to hear that at least some folks in Kazakhstan are feeling better about the Borat exposure now, and hopefully the country will see a positive boost to their tourism. That's it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go print off a bunch of tweets I found interesting, put them into an envelope, and then mail them to my friends like my grandma used to do with newspaper clippings. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.